chatter is quite prevalent. And I think it is one of the big problems we face as a species because it can sink us in many of the domains that I think make life really worth living. Our ability to be successful and to be engaged at work, our ability to have thriving personal relationships and to live a relatively low-stress, healthy life. Chatter impacts each of those domains in ways that can be quite harmful, which is why I've spent so much time trying to figure out when we're stuck in chatter, what can we do to manage it and get rid of it? Hi, I'm Lisa Brooks-Mills hosting this episode of The Glow Podcast. I'm sharing my conversation with Dr. Ethan Cross, professor of psychology and management at the University of Michigan, where he is the founder and director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory, where they do research on the silent conversations people have with themselves, which powerfully influences how we live our lives. Ethan is also the author of the national bestseller, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Chatter interweaves groundbreaking behavioral and brain research with colorful, real-world examples to explain how the conversations we have with ourselves shape our lives. As Ethan explains, when we experience stress, our inner voice can lose its way and get caught up in chatter, which can look like negative thought loops, rumination, and worry. This can not only torment but paralyze us and affect our health, work, relationships, and more. I hope by the end of our conversation, you'll be inspired to explore his book, Chatter, where he reveals the hidden power of our inner voice and shows how we can harness it to live a healthier, more satisfying, and more productive life. I have been finding it helpful to implement and experiment with the Toolbox, 26 tools that Ethan offers to calm chatter and helping turn the inner voice from critic to coach. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ethan Cross. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to speak with you today. I'm in Santa Monica, and you are in Ann Arbor, where I was born and raised. So this is extra special for me. I'll actually be in Ann Arbor soon um, to visit family. I have not seen my family in person since before the pandemic, so I'm I'm excited to see them. Um, wow. Yeah. So I'm also, though, deeply interested in your work. And I've just been really looking forward to this conversation. I've been diving into your book. Congratulations on your book, Chatter, The Voice in Your Head and How to Harness It. I'm grateful that this book and your work are out into the world. I like your writing style. It's warm, inviting, and friendly. I felt engaged throughout the whole book. You held my attention. <laughs> um, you weave in personal anecdote, a, a, a specific personal anecdote, a few of them, but there's one main story which which really helps create connection, helps it feel intimate and personal. Um, there's so much value in the science you share to help the audience understand the inner voice and chatter and the importance of applying the suggested accessible and actionable tools to, as you say, turn your inner voice from critic to coach. The heart and human element of using examples of ways people are using the tools are super interesting and super beneficial. And some of these people are well-recognized figures, which always makes it extra fun. Um, 
So there's so much I want to get to in our time together, but I think it would be great to start with your father because you mentioned him several times in your book. If you'd like to start there, that'd be great. Yeah, happy to. And 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 thanks for having me on the show, Lisa. It is a it's a delight to be here, and I appreciate um, the warm comments about about Chatter, which was you know a, a significant portion of my life in the making. So it's always good to hear that it, it the message lands well. Um, so so how does my dad fit into Chatter? Um, you know, people often ask when I first got interested in, in, in studying using science, the inner voice. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been studying it formally for 20 years, but, but I've been thinking about the inner voice for, for close to 40. And, um, that is due to my dad because when I was around three years old, my dad started telling me, Hey, little guy, whenever, whenever something bad happens, just go inside and tap into that inner voice and try to figure out a solution to the problem. Uh, Just just so listeners know, my dad was a pretty unconventional kind of dad. Uh, So I I grew up in in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I I like to say I grew up there before it was cool to live there. And what I mean by that is is not that my family were trendsetters in any way. But but when I grew up in Brooklyn, it was not not the place it is right now. It was much more kind of tough, gritty gritty part of, of New York. And my dad was a pretty gritty guy who, you know, was a chain smoker, big bushy mustache, loved flipping off other drivers on the on the road. But when he wasn't doing all of that, he was reading about Eastern philosophy and, and meditating in his bedroom and talking to me at three years old about the inner voice. So a pretty colorful character. Um, basically, I listened to my dad's advice throughout my childhood and adolescence. Whenever I'd get into an argument with someone, my mom, my dad, my friends, I turn my attention inward and try to come up with a solution for what to do next. And nine times out of 10, that strategy would work really well for me. I'd come up with a a way of proceeding with my life and I'd move on to the next thing. I never really got stuck. Um, Then I got to college and I took my first psychology class and about halfway through the semester, I got to the topic of introspection, which is, which is the name that, that scientists use to talk about what my dad and I had spent all this time talking about, which is turning your attention inward to reflect on something in your life. And what I learned when we got to that topic was sometimes introspection was amazingly helpful. It helped people solve problems, work through negative experiences in, in ways that really allow our people, and when I mean by our people, I mean human beings to, to excel and thrive. But at other times, doing this exact same thing, focusing our attention inward to make sense of a problem, ended up also getting people into terrible trouble. So they'd end up ruminating and worrying and catastrophizing. And to use the technical term, really making themselves crazy. And, and, and I use that not to be insensitive, but to just poke some some levity at this situation, but we can often be our own worst enemies and, and introspection was fueling that. And so for me, that was a giant puzzle. Why, why do we have this ability to tap into this inner voice? Sometimes it's really helpful, other times really harmful. And so then I went to graduate school to figure out how to use science to, to figure out why that happens. Why is this inner voice sometimes good or bad? And, and most importantly, when we find our inner voice conspiring against us, what can we do 
to make it work for us again rather than against us. Um, so that's my dad. That's how he factors into the story. That's beautiful. Before we go into inner voice and chatter, I wonder if we could just go into childhood a little bit more because it sounds like your experience is, would you say it's more unique, especially from such a young age? I think you were like three or four years old. That's quite young to start. Yeah. Obviously not fully conceptualizing, but just hearing the terms and familiarizing in some way. And I wonder if you could touch a little bit more on how our parents model self-control for us when we're children and how those approaches seep into our development. Because, I mean, obviously they're sometimes saying it, but not necessarily modeling it. So we're hearing it, but not seeing it. Uh, but still, it, it does have an impact. I wonder if you could just touch on that a little bit of the importance of that in terms of sort of um, being more aware and mindful in parenting. Totally. Um, uh, and, and we'll get probably at another point during the conversation to the idea of doing as I say, not as I do, um, which, you know, is not as hypocritical as, as, as you might think. But, you know, parents play um, an incredible role in, in shaping the way we view the world, in shaping the way we think about ourselves, and in influencing our capacity to control ourselves. Parents help us figure out when we should or shouldn't be trying to control ourselves. And they also give us tools to help us do that. I like to think of um, self-control um, as, so self-control refers to our ability to think, feel, or behave the way we want to think, feel, or behave. It's an incredibly valuable attribute that we know predicts all sorts of good things. The more self-control you have, the better your relationships, the better your health, the better you do financially and so forth. Um, and self-control is two pieces motivation, right? You've got to be motivated to control yourself and then ability. What are the tools, right? You could be super motivated to do something, but if you don't know how to do it, nothing is going to happen, right? The flip side is you can know exactly what you should be doing, but if you're not motivated to use those tools, you're not going to be successful. So to be successful at self-control, you need motivation and tools. And our parents on a prime position to give both of those to us, to gift that to us in a certain sense. Like I have two daughters and I'm regularly talking to them about, hey, I don't say it this way, but I'll say it to you. Like, here are the situations in which you, you want to, you know, let your emotions fly versus, you know, dial them back a little bit. Or, you know, here's when you should speak freely versus censor what you're going to say, right? So I'm, 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 I'm trying to educate them about how to navigate this tricky, thorny world that we live in optimally. And self-control is all about doing it. And I'm also giving them tools. I'm saying, all right, if you want to um, not laugh in class when it might get in trouble, like here's a strategy you can use to do that. So I'm, I'm both giving them the motivation, but also the ability. And so uh, I'm really thankful that my dad was was – really helpful in giving me those those skills from the time I was really young. Um, you know, some of the conversations definitely elicited eye rolls when I was a little kid. I was like, can we just not, can we not just talk about the Yankees or doing other things like every other dad and child? <laughs> but um, but the message really seeped in and I'm, I'm really grateful for it uh, in retrospect. I actually think we'd, we'd 
we'd all do a lot better if we spent some time talking about our inner worlds around the dinner table. Um, I think it's amazing how, how intimately familiar our minds are to us, our emotions, our thoughts, and yet we rarely actually talk about them. Like, what does it even mean to have an inner voice? What is an emotion? Are emotions good? Are they bad? Can you control emotions? Remember my daughter when she was around five saying, I can't control my emotions. They just, I just feel them. And, and there's a whole conversation you can have around that because you can control your emotions. Awesome. Yeah, I was just writing emotional agility as you were saying that, which I'm sure as a whole, we could probably spend a whole, a whole podcast episode on that alone. Totally. But on your father briefly, I'm curious, you mentioned seeing him reading books like the Bhagavad Gita. What do you think brought him to these ancient texts, his own curiosity? Did childhood experiences inspire him or something he learned from his father? Well, no, he definitely did not learn it from his dad. And, um, you know, there's one more beat we should go into on parents. Parents play a role in shaping our capacity for self-control. They also influence, by the way, our inner voice and, you know, what we say to ourselves when we talk to ourselves and our, in our minds. Um, but parents aren't the only force that shapes the way we think about self-control and the world around us. Um, Parents play and caregivers early on are the primary force shaping it. But as we get older, our friends, our teachers, and our broader culture also plays a role in shaping that inner voice and shaping also our capacity for self-control. So, so it's parents initially, but then, then the funnel widens to our social relationships and even the organizations to which we belong, right? Those are shaping how we think about controlling ourselves and, and interact with others too. Uh, and I think my dad exemplifies that well. I don't know that his parents talked to him about these issues very much, um, but I know that there was, some, there was some conflict in his parents' life growing up, and I, I think that highlighted the need um, for him to have self-control uh, or the ability to manage his emotions. And he was also growing up during an era in the 60s um, when conversations around some of these quote-unquote softer topics like emotions and, and, and Eastern philosophy were becoming really, really um, accessible to, to the Western world in the form of, um, you know, the Beatles and, 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 and the hippie movement and things of that sort. And, and while he never, you know, I wouldn't say he was a hippie, he definitely did subscribe to those. He did get caught up in some of those Eastern philosophical practices, which interestingly enough, as you now know, um, have, have, have kind of returned um, with more science behind them, I think, over the past two decades. So, um, so his, his path to uh, these areas was a little bit different than mine in terms of how he got interested in them. It was also very different how he followed up on these interests compared to the way that I did. He really stuck with uh, philosophy and firsthand experience, uh, going to retreats and visiting ashrams and things of that throughout his life, whereas I really went to science and, um, uh, and have really valued shifting to science, uh, using it as a tool to uh, think critically about some of these ancient practices and, and also some very new practices that don't have ancient connections and thinking about how how effective they are and how they fit together to give people a toolbox of techniques to manage their minds. 
Okay, super. That's great. That's that's really helpful perspective. Um, well, I wonder if we could start with the voice in our head. <laughs> we all have what a voice in our head. How, how, how about we start there? Why do we talk to ourselves? So, um, so I think this is a great question. I love to take a few minutes to just, to just kind of, um, give the two minute intro to what this voice in our head is. So you said it first, we all do have an, an inner voice. Interestingly enough, when I, I usually give talks on this to, to audiences, I ask them, Hey, is your inner voice a nuisance or an asset? And, and consistently the audience is split. 50% say, yeah, it's great. The other 50 say, Oh, it's terrible. Shut it up. Silence it. Um, my response to those who say, just get rid of it, silence it is now you wouldn't want to do that because your inner voice is a tool. We've evolved the capacity to talk to ourselves for a reason. And so what you really want to figure out is how to let this tool work for you rather than against you. So what is the inner voice at its most basic? Um, the most basic element of the inner voice is we're talking about the ability to silently use language. And, and the ability to use language silently is a tool that helps us do lots of different things. So if I were to ask you to, um, you know, repeat, repeat um, in your head what we like to say in Ann Arbor, go blue, right? That's the, the chant for our football team, which you no doubt are familiar with, right? If I ask you to just silently repeat that three times right now, can you do it? Were you able to just do that? It's so easy. So easy, right? Yeah. So what I've just, you've just, congratulations, you've used your inner voice. <laughs> Not only um, did I use really, it, I saw the stadium and I heard cheering. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, now we're going even further to the, to the inner hearing. Um, that's, that's, that's a topic for another book. But, um, but our inner voice is part of what we call our, our verbal working memory system. This is a basic aspect of the mind that all healthy minds possess. If you go to the grocery store and think to yourself, Oh, what do I have to buy? Yogurt, cheese, bread. Like you repeat that in your head, you, you're using your inner voice. So your inner voice lets you keep information active in your head. That's essential to navigating this world successfully. And that's your inner voice. That's one thing it does. Your inner voice also helps you plan and simulate things for the future. So before I have a big presentation, I will rehearse in my head. I'll walk around the neighborhood and I'll go over in my head what I'm going to say from start to finish. When I get to the end of the presentation in my head, I'll, I'll hear what an audience member is going to ask me and then I'll simulate a response. So that's me planning, right? People report doing this before dates. Hey, what if they ask me this or an interview, right? What am I going to say? That's your inner voice. Super helpful. Your inner voice also helps you do something that I think is just so beautiful, which is it helps you create stories that, that, that explain your life, that give shape to your sense of who you are. So, you know, bad things happen. You get rejected and you, you don't get the job or the date doesn't go well or you're, you know, something else negative. You stop and you try to make sense. Hey, why did that happen? Why did I get rejected? And we end up then using language to come up with a story, a narrative, right? that explains what happened to us in ways that give give shape to our sense of who we are. That's your inner voice too. So it's a kind of a Swiss army knife of the human mind that lets you do lots of different things. Um, that's the good side. The bad side is that sometimes when we experience the stress, we turn to this inner voice to get us out of stress 
for all the reasons I just described, but we don't come up with, with very clean, crisp stories. Instead, we end up getting stuck. We get stuck in these negative thought loops where we rehearse over and over the negative things. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. What if they do this? And what if this happens? Or anticipating the future and worrying anxiously. And, and that's what I call chatter, right? Chatter is an example of an inner voice run amok. You are focusing your attention inward to work through a problem, to solve it, but that's not what happens. You just start spinning. The, the, the visual I like to give is being like a, a hamster on an exercise wheel. You keep trying to work through the problem, but in doing so, you keep that problem active in your head in ways that can be really toxic, toxic for you, toxic for your ability to perform well at work, toxic for your relationships and your physical health. And I think this chatter is, um, is quite prevalent. And I think it is one of the big problems we face as a species um, because it can sink us in many of the domains that I think make life really worth living, right? Our ability to, to, to be successful and to be engaged at work, our ability to have thriving personal relationships and to live a, 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 a relatively low stress, healthy life. Chatter impacts each of those domains in ways that can be quite, quite harmful, which is why I've spent so much time trying to figure out when we're stuck in chatter, what can we do to, um, to manage it and get rid of it? A few things came to mind. Just how chatter can suck the joy out of life in so many ways and then affect you know, your life, those in, immediately around you. And so that just came to mind how paralyzing and, and how sabotaging it can be. And I wonder, because a lot of our listeners, our audience, you know, our platforms all around wellness for body, heart and mind. Could you speak for a moment about how the voice in our head can have an effect on our health? Sure. So um, a lot of people think that um, that stress is a killer right? Stress is synonymous with poor health. That's actually not correct. So a stress, the ability to have a stress response is, is, is quite adaptive, right? If, if there's some threat in front of you, your ability to quickly approach it or avoid it, this is huge, right? It has allowed us to, to survive our species, right? So what makes stress really toxic for our health is when our stress response goes up, when it's triggered, and then it remains chronically activated over time. And that is precisely what chatter does because we experience something stressful and then we don't just experience it and then move on, but we keep replaying that experience over and over in our heads, right? We're using our inner voice to keep that experience active. And, and in, a, in, in a very real sense, what that ends up doing is it keeps our stress response active chronically over time. And that exerts a wear and tear on the body that can be um, truly toxic for our physical health. That's one of the reasons how you get um, chronic stress predicting things like cardiovascular disease, problems of inflammation, GI issues, even certain forms of cancer. So um, the links here between chatter and, um, and our physical body are quite significant. They're quite well uh, articulated in, in scientific research. So 
when we're talking about chatter, we're not just talking about feeling bad subjectively. We're also talking about this chatter having a, a negative physical manifestation uh, in your body as well. Right. That makes complete sense when we replay stress-inducing scenarios in our mind. It takes a toll on the body. And I'll let you add to this. I think it'd be great to stay on this for a minute more. Um, I'm just thinking of adrenal fatigue and high cortisol levels, how that can be the precursor, as you're saying, to many chronic health issues. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, it, it's very complicated. Um, it, biologically, you've got, you've got cortisol secretion, you've got um, uh, problems of inflammation, there's cardiovascular reactivity, the resistance to blood flow in your body is increasing. So, you know, the stress response is choreographed by many different systems in the body. It's almost like if you think of a military operation, right? It's not just the Marines that are in there. You've got the Marines, you've got the Navy SEALs, you've got the Army, the Air Force. So lots of different systems in our body are becoming activated. And what the stress response is doing, if we want to stick with this metaphor, is it's keeping those different systems activated chronically over time. And they're not designed for those long-term deployments. They're designed for these very short-term engagements, get in there, get out. And when you leave them active, that has negative implications for lots of other things happening in your body because you have less resources to deal with other other problem areas. Um, so, Yeah, and I was just thinking how when you're depleted in that way, then it's probably harder to maybe implement tools to control or shift chatter. That's right. And then it's sort of even snowballs, right? Like it's totally. And, and that's, a, that's a point worth talking about a little bit more. So a lot of the tools, not all of the tools that are useful for fighting chatter, but a lot of them, they require resources or effort to implement. And we have a finite set of, of resources to do hard things. Right? You can only do hard things for so long. And chatter is consuming. We call these these work, working memory resources that we have. And so if all your attention is devoted to the chatter, that doesn't leave over a lot of resources to, to, to manage it. A great example of this is to think about a time when you were um, reading a book while stressed about something. Lots of people have had the experience of trying to read five or six pages. They are positive without any doubt that they've read the words on the page but they get to the end and they don't remember anything that they've actually read. Has, has this happened to you? So often. Yeah, without fail, like people have this experience. The reason for that is your, your attentional resources weren't devoted to making sense of what you read. Instead, they were devoted to thinking about the chatter. Like another example is you're sitting at a table with your, your loved ones, right? And they're telling you about their day and they talk for five or 10 minutes and then at the end, you ask them about what they just told you because you, you heard, but you didn't really hear. That's because your mind was somewhere else and it was, it was stuck in your chatter. And so then you begin to, to think about that example. Then you begin to understand how chatter can also affect our, our relationships with other people in ways that can really damage those relationships and lead to things like loneliness and rejection as well. And here's the other thing to, to think about. Um, you know, nowadays we often hear that mind wandering isn't great. You should like focus on the present, be really engaged. And, and that can be a very useful tool for managing chatter, but it's one tool among many. 
But I think a really important point is that our ability to mind wander can be really useful too. So like going for a walk and letting your mind go and let let your mind kind of just like work on a problem in the background. Like mm. some of the greatest creative thinkers throughout history mm. have subscribed to that strategy. Um, that's letting your inner voice kind of solve problems, right? Which which it can do if it's not consumed with chatter. Mm-hmm. So um, so we really do want to manage that that chatter. I mean, when I was writing chatter, there were many moments of mm. chatter or potential chatter, and and when that happened, one of the tools I used was I I go for a walk in nature, and I and I would know that if I just went for an hour walk, like usually it would be all better by the time I got back. And, and it usually was. Um, and, and so that's, you know, we're getting into tools now. That's so fun to hear um, how you were calming shatter as you're writing shatter. <laughs> but yeah, walking and getting out into nature, and that seems like it would be one of the tools likely that people, you know, already lean into, maybe not even fully realizing that this exercise is helpful for managing shatter. All of this is really helpful. And I like what you said there. Our ability to mind wander is one of the tools, one of the useful tools for managing chatter. And I know you go into this more in your book. This may be a great moment to touch on meditation, yoga asanas, and mindfulness practices. I'm sure our audience would appreciate hearing more. Yeah, absolutely. I think mindfulness and yoga um, asanas are... um, can be incredibly valuable, um, and um, and we could get into how they work. I'm happy to talk about that. I think one message that is sometimes lost is that mindfulness and meditation are the only tools that exist. Like, if you are experiencing chatter, focus on the moment, and that's the only thing that that you you can or should do. And I think that is taking. Um, some of these practices to an extreme. I don't know of any tools that work for all people in all situations. What I know is that we've evolved this this capacity to use many different tools. So in in Chatter, the book, not it's hard to talk about like the book that's titled Chatter when you're talking about Chatter in the interview. <laughs> but in the book, um, I talk about 26 different tools. Like and different tools work for different people in different situations. Like there are five or six tools that work really well for me, they're different from the tools that work well for my wife. And so um, uh, so I think meditation is great. I got my mantra when I was five years old and have been meditating on and off since. I'm a, a yoga devotee, I love it. Um, but there are many other things that I use in addition to meditation, yoga, and, um, and those aren't my like initial, those aren't the first tools that I use when it comes to chatter. Um, they both tend to be more effortful and there are some other tools that are that are also much quicker and easier to use. So uh, I think the more we can shift the discourse away from these thinking about specific single tools, just do this and instead trying to think about, hey, what are the, what are the range of tools that I could use to manage myself? I think the better off we'll be. We actually did a study um, we did two studies during uh, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, in which we looked at, hey, what were people doing each day over the course of several days, I think 10 days or two weeks, to manage their anxiety? And we asked people a lot about lots of different tools, um, 
mindfulness meditation was one amongst many others. Um, and what we found is that single to using like one tool that really didn't move the needle on people's anxiety. Instead, what moved the needle was using multiple healthy tools. People who used several healthy tools were much better off than people who used several unhealthy tools. So it really is about finding that combination of tools that work best for you. Um, one way to think about this is like, you want to build a house, you're not going to go into that job with just a hammer. You're going to have a whole toolkit. And I think if we think about um, building a really good emotional life, um, you know, we also want several tools to help us do that. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, I love this. So the last section of your book includes all of the tools for helping when we're experiencing chatter. So when our inner voice leads us down a path of negative self-talk, worry, rumination, and we're experiencing chatter. And as you say, these tools help us harness our inner voice so that we can be happier, healthier, and more productive. And that it's not just about one tool, as you were explaining, it's a combination of tools. And one specific situation may require a different set of tools than another situation. You mentioned walking in nature. This is one of the tools that involves the environment. Um, in your book, you lay out the tools into three categories. Perhaps you could share more about this, the way you have organized the tools into three buckets. I found this to be really helpful. So yeah, this is a framework for thinking about how, where these tools reside. And you know, you've got some tools that these are things you could do on your own, ways of shifting the way you're thinking about your circumstances um, to help break you out of chatter. Then there are what I call people tools, tools that leverage our relationships with others to help us work through our chatter. Other people can be an amazing resource or vulnerability when it comes to managing our chatter. And I think it's really important to know um, who to talk to and how to talk to them because um, the kinds of conversations you have and who you have them with can make all the difference, uh, all the difference in making things either better or much, much worse. So that's the second bucket. And then the third bucket, uh, which I find just fascinating, are, are what I call environmental tools, ways of interacting with your physical spaces, which can help you manage the conversations that you have with yourself really from the outside in. Um, and, you know, I could tell you that I use a few tools from each of those buckets when I begin to detect chatter brewing. And so you don't have to confine yourself to one. You can, you can readily pull from, from different, different categories. Okay, this is great. And, and with the tools, you include strategies and examples of how to implement them, which is helpful. So summarizing the three buckets, they include tools that you can implement on your own, tools that leverage your relationship with other people, and tools that involve your environment. So if we could just take a moment to look at the tools that leverage our relationships. In this section, there are two subcategories, tools for providing chatter support and tools for receiving chatter support. One of the tools for providing chatter support is addressing people's emotional and cognitive needs. So essentially when people come to us for help with their chatter, could we dive into this a little bit? You mentioned only addressing the emotional can create some connection, but it's not completely helpful if the cognitive bit isn't included. Yeah, totally. So a lot of people think that um, 
when you're experiencing chatter, what you want to do is find a person to just unload your emotions. You just vent your feelings, express your emotions. And there's been a lot of research on whether that doing that venting actually makes us feel better. And what we've learned is um, when, when, to, when a person vents to someone else, so Lisa, you and I, we've got the Ann Arbor connection, lots of similar interests now, like we're buddies. <laughs> I call you up with a problem and I just unload. That's really good for our relationship, right? So you being there and taking the time to empathically listen and engage with me and validate what I'm feeling, that makes me feel really good about my friendship with you. But if all we do is pinball back and forth about what happened to me and how awful it was, like, you're never going to believe it. This, this, this person said this, I was so upset. And then they said this, and I hate them. You basically leave that conversation and you're just as upset as when you started, right? So I feel really great about our relationship. I know you're there for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm still pissed off at the end. The best kinds of conversations when it comes to chatter involve the person that you're talking to doing two things for you. First, they do need to listen, right? It is important to give the person you're talking to the opportunity to share what's going through their mind. You have to learn about what they've experienced to a certain degree. But then at a certain point in the conversation, what you ideally want to do is help help them see that bigger picture. Try to help them reframe how they're thinking about the, the situation to ultimately let them work through it, right? So you wanna, you wanna eventually shift from learning about what happened and what the person was feeling to helping them make sense of that circumstance. And other people are in a prime position to help us do that because they've got, they've got some distance, some objectivity, right? What I've gone through, let's say I was rejected by someone, like that didn't happen to you, Lisa, so you can, you can really help me think it through in a way that I can't if I'm overwhelmed with emotion, but you've got to give me that nudge to help me do it. So, so those are the two, the two pieces to being what I call a good chatter advisor to someone else. First, you take some time to listen and hear them out, but at a certain point in the conversation, you start trying to help reframe how they think about that experience. And, you know, different people um, may require different amounts of time before they're ready to get into that second part of the conversation, right? So there is an art to this. And what I like to tell people is if you're not sure about, well, when is the right time to try to help that person figure out how to reframe it, you know, you can ask them, Mm -hmm. right? Like what I would not advocate doing is, my wife is really upset. She comes to me with a problem and I instantly go into reframing mode. Well, sweetie, here's the way you have to think about it. Just, you know, put it in context, not a big deal. Like if you just launch into that giving (laughs) advice segment, right, this is where they're going to be expletives. Like I want you to listen. Like it is important to listen for a little bit, but then if you're not sure about whether to switch, you can, Hey, you know, you want to keep going? I'm happy to keep listening. Or I, I have something I want to say. Can I offer you this piece of advice? So just with empathy and compassion, ask the person, are they ready to start trying to think differently to problem solve and work through? Um, those, those are the, the pieces there. So, so I think the take-homes here are relevant in two, in two regards, right? There are lessons here for how you, if you are struggling with chatter, right? Who should you talk to about it? There are lots of people in our lives 
that I think are really good at just listening without helping us reframe things. Um, there are many people in my life who I love dearly and who love me. I don't go to them with my chatter because I know all they're going to do is get me to just rehash it. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to help me actually work through it. So I think really carefully about who are the people who don't just take the time to listen, but also people who are adept at helping me reframe that experience. And like, there aren't many of those people, but I don't need a lot of them. There are like three people who I, who I go to for personal issues and four people who I go to when it comes to like work problems. And, and that's my board of, of chatter advisors. It's, it's very much like a company. A company, when a company is experiencing some kind of threat, there's a board that you consult, right? And this board, these are, you think really carefully about who are the board of advisors for a company. These are people who have the expertise and knowledge to steer that company to success. I think we'd all be better off if we thought carefully about how, who our own personal board of advisors are. Um, and, and so that's, that's one take home. The other take home is if someone comes to you with their chatter looking for help, be mindful of these two principles. Take the time to listen, but at the appropriate time in the conversation, help them go broad, help them see that bigger picture and reframe how they're thinking about it. So important. Okay. I think that's a great takeaway for folks. Now let's just get into, if you know, it's funny looking at the, at the tools they are organized in a super nice way. I'm very visual and I like to have things on a wall. For instance, the gratitude board, where if I was feeling down, I'd go to my gratitude board and immediately shift my energy. So I created an inner voice empowerment board based on your tools. I've sketched out the first version. Yeah. And it's going to grow broader, but it's like, hello, chatter. I see you. I hear you. But there's a better way, like superpowers. I think it's a fun, playful way to approach it. Mm -hmm. You've already lightened the energy around shifting out of chatter mode. Yeah, that looks super cool. Thank you. So to highlight a few tools that you can implement on your own, um, using distant self-talk. So here you say you use your name and the second person referring to yourself, which may feel strange at first, but you give great examples of athletes and others that use this method. And you mentioned that doing this creates less activation in the brain networks. So I was playing around with it a little bit. You know, Lisa, you got this. You can do this. This is one I haven't used much in my life, but I, I want to try, you know, using this one more. Um, a, another one is imagine advising a friend, thinking of the advice you'd give a dear friend and applying it to ourselves. I think of our our inner child here as well. You know, what would I say to her? Another is reinterpreting your body's chatter response. I love this one so much. Uh, reframing nervousness, for instance, when speaking in front of a group of people, to look at the nervousness as excitement and the racing heart, sweaty palms, as you, as you say, is not a harmful or bad thing, but a natural response when facing a challenge. And writing expressively, journaling your stream of thoughts, another great one that potentially many people innately lean into when experiencing chatter. There are just so many great tools, as we mentioned, 26 total, uh, many that I haven't tried and that I look forward to implementing and experimenting with. Well, and I, and I think you've, you've, you've nailed it in, in the sense that like just another way of making sense of all these different tools is one of the things that happens when we experience chatter is that we zoom in very narrowly on the problem. It's all we could think about, tunnel vision. 
And what we've learned is that in those, when that happens, doing the opposite can be really helpful, taking a step back and seeing that bigger picture. And there are lots and lots of ways to help us do that. Like what, because when we zoom out and see the bigger picture, we can often find solutions to our problems that are not apparent when we're just very narrowly focused on how awful the situation is. Um, so it is about getting perspective and um, many, many different ways to do that. Some are intuitive, as you suggested, or things that are already out there, like writing expressively about our problems is one way to do it. Um, but then there are other tools that are not, I think, on people's radar mm -hmm. or sometimes people do without even knowing it, like talking to yourself using your name, as you described before. This is an efficient way of using language to help us work through a problem with some distance, right? If you, if you think about it, we're, 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 we're often much kinder and constructive when other people come to us with their problems than we are when we're dealing with our own. Sometimes in the experiments that we run, we, we ask people to tell us, hey, what's going through your head right now when you're experiencing chatter? People don't even want to sometimes tell us what they're thinking because they're embarrassed, mm -hmm. right? Like they would never say to someone else what they say to themselves. And, and what we've learned is that when you use your own name to refer to yourself, to try to work through a problem, in a certain sense, that, that's a way of using language to switch your perspective. Like most of the time that we use names, we use them when we think about other people and talk to other people. So when you use your own name, it's like talking to another person. And that can be really helpful when you're experiencing chatter. So that's one, one tool that I think is, is easy to implement. Um, Another, another one that I personally rely on is um, mental time travel. Um, and so here, here, you know, think about if you're really struggling with something, how are you going to feel about this a week from now or a month from now or a year from now, right? Consistently, that tends to improve people's mood because what it does is it, it makes people realize, hey, as awful as what I'm going through is, it's temporary. It'll eventually pass. And that gives people hope, which is a boon when it comes to an inner voice run amok. So, um, so those are just a few, as you said, many, many more in the book, yeah. but, um, but lots of tools that people can use. And I think the, the, the really, uh, encouraging take home is you can figure out which tools work best for you. Try mm -hmm. these tools. And if, if one works great, keep using it. If not oscillate and try something else. That's great and helpful. Yes. Mental time travel. I'm going to experience with or experiment with that one more. I have used it at times when facing a procedure or something similar. So, so many times we're nervous leading up to those types of events and the anticipation is often, you know, worse than the actual experience. So I'm going to try using that tool more. I like it. One of my favorite quotes kept coming to mind while I was reading this book, your, your book, <laughs> um, between stimulus and response, there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom, which of course is by Viktor Frankl, neurologist, psychologist, and Holocaust survivor. And I realize this isn't obviously speaking directly to the inner voice, but if we're met with the stimulus that triggers the chatter, harnessing that moment, recognizing the chatter, and applying the tools, and then we respond to others from that space versus responding from the chatter space, We've sort of now harnessed that moment and what may be potential suffering. So I don't know if you yeah. have any, I don't have a specific question around it. It was just more of a reflection. No, well, well um, you know, Viktor Frankl is among the, the 
um, people who really inspired me to go into psychology and his man's search for meaning as a book um, I read in college and I assign it every year that I teach a seminar here at Michigan on the issues we're talking about. Oh, so great. I very much resonate with his message and, 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 um, you know, the line that he talks about in his book that really sticks out in my mind is he quotes Nietzsche, the philosopher, and he says, he who has a why to live for can deal with almost any how, mm. um, he or she or they, right? So mm-hmm. any, anyone who has a why, a, an explanation, a way of making sense and meaning of this experience can deal with any situation. That was his guiding mantra. What I think Frankel, I think he's exactly right, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. What we've learned over time is that getting that why, getting that explanation, that sense of meaning can be really hard, right? It's not always easy to do. I think many people intuitively try to get that why, to understand what they're going through, but that's exactly when they falter. Mm. And that's when there is an opportunity for people to use these tools to help them engage in that meaning-making process more effectively. And that meaning-making process, like the inner voice is what makes it happen. And so um, so I think Frankel and, and is very much um, consistent with everything I talk about in Chatter. And, and the hope is that the tools that are described there um, can help people um, bring about the ends that Frankel talked about in his book more efficiently than they might without those tools. Super. That's super helpful. I love that perspective. Um, okay. So anything else before we, we're going to end with self-care non-negotiables in a moment here, but anything else that you'd like to add on for tools? No, I, th- I think you've covered it really well. You know, we, we've just begun to scratch the surface in this conversation about what tools exist and how they work. And so I'd really encourage people to, um, to learn more about them. Uh, I think science has done a really good job at identifying individual tools and we've learned a lot. Um, and the challenge that scientists now face is the same one that I think listeners do, which is to start figuring out what are the combinations of tools that work best for them, given their unique constitution and the unique situations they face in their life. So there is a challenge that awaits us all, which is to try to start experimenting with these tools in our lives. If they work, keep using them. And if they don't try something else, um, that's that would a good be my point. party message. That's no, that's a great party message. And what works well today, ten years from now, might not might not work as well, right? And you might have to even shift shift as that's at right. that point that's as right. you change, as you evolve and change. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so on to self care neg- ne- self care non negotiables. That's a bit of a tongue twister. What are the top things, Ethan, that you've recognized that are most helpful for you that that help fill your cup, so to speak, so that you can have a positive impact on your ability to show up for yourself, your family, your colleagues, and so on? Um, certainly not experiencing chatter. Um, <laughs> so keeping my chatter at bay, um, that's genuinely true. Um, having in, uh, engaging social interactions with people I care about, um, having my attention focused at work on something that I think is meaningful is very important. Um, doing work that I think has a purpose and um, if I can get some exercise and, and have, a, have, have some good meals in there, that would be great too. Super. Those are great. Yeah. Calming chatter, creating connection, having purpose, movement, nourishing the body, calming chatter. I'm going to add that to my self-care non-negotiables. 
I feel what happens in my body, mind, and heart when chatter runs amok and how it affects those around me. That's, that's great. Well, thank you so much again for your time today and for putting this book out into the world. It's been getting all kinds of attention, understandably so. Um, you know, once in a while, I read a book that I just want to gift to everyone I know and, and those I don't know. <laughs> but that's how I feel about your book. Sincerely, it's relevant, meaningful, and what I would consider a helpful for humanity book. Because it really, if we practice watching the nature of the mind and paying attention to any chatter that arises, and then applying the practical tools you've outlined, it can positively affect not only our lives as individuals, but those around us. And the opposite also being true. If we don't do the work and pay attention, we can cause needless harm and suffering to ourselves and those around us. So I encourage folks to check out your book and share it with loved ones. Um, thank you again, Ethan. This has just been a meaningful conversation. It's It's been a pleasure. And we'll, we'll definitely link to ethancross.com, right? That's sort of the best spot I've noticed to find out about your lab at the University of Michigan and read more about the book. There's also an eight-question question quiz there, How Well Do You Know Your Inner Voice, which I took and I encourage others to go there and take. Um, so if there's any other links, let me know or where folks can find you. Um, let us know. I will do. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. Very much appreciated. It makes the work feel um, worthwhile and meaningful. And, and this was a great conversation. So um, awesome. hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, I would love that. And I would love to come to your lab in Ann Arbor and be part of an experiment. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let me know the next time you're in town and if we've got something going, um, you know, without electric shocks or something, we'll sign yes. up. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Ethan. Take care. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.